0: Hola. Hello! Bienvenidos, Bienvenidos a Entredos. A podcast about reading bilingual children.
1: I do like to read with my mama. What kind of Spanish do you speak? Our perceptions about what kind of bilingual we want our kids to be are rooted in what we feel is acceptable Spanish. As native speakers, these expectations hinge on our countries of origin, our geographic location in the U.S., and also underlying colonial narratives. In this two-part series, we're coming to terms with this. Interactions with you, our listeners, and our own experiences have shown the more deep-rooted anxieties that parents have about the heritage language their kids speak.
0: Producing this episode has made me very aware of my and other people's perceptions, and it all came to a head during an unassuming Spanish story time that I frequent with Zoe. One of the mothers said that Zoe has a gringa accent when she speaks Spanish. She even made a face when she was saying it. How this is something a person feels comfortable saying out loud is beyond me. And so I didn't notice, so I didn't make a fuss, but I was so angry. I wondered if this would be hurtful to Soe, if it would make her feel less ownership of her heritage, because in that moment, I felt like an outsider. And I also realized that maybe this mother was insecure about how her much younger daughter's accent might evolve into sounding more... American. It was a very loaded moment.
1: I can imagine. I'm not even sure how I would have reacted to something like that, and I can't imagine what it would do to someone's confidence in speaking a language. Yet, while we may not comment on it out loud, the truth is that we all make assumptions about people based on how they speak a language. We have these ingrained ideas of what is correct and what's not. Today's conversation explores just that
0: We spoke to Salvatore Calesano, a sociolinguistic researcher and instructor at the University of Texas, Austin, who studies linguistic production and perception in U.S. Latinx communities. He did a study on the relationship between linguistics and social perceptions using Miami as his case study.
2: One of my particular areas of interest just is how people perceive others according to language. And when I got to Miami, not being from Miami, being from New York originally, I was struck with all of these explicit attitudes that you would hear just in the street. Um, you know, I remember I lived in, in Doral uh, when I was there, and Dorasuela as they call it. I remember being in um, the Publix and speaking to the cashier in Spanish. And then she turned to the, the he was a teenager um, who was bagging my groceries. And she told him that I was speaking Spanish better than he could. And this poor kid wasn't even involved in the conversation. He was just on the side, but it just became very apparent to me that people in Miami are thinking about this, right? That this is something that's on, on their mind.
1: Salvatore and the research team found that Miami, unlike any other area in the country, has a wide and diverse Spanish-speaking community.
2: And that's the really cool thing. And that's one of the things that we, as we've been doing this work for over the past couple of years now, you know, Miami really is different than other, other U.S. Latino cities on a number of levels. I mean, yes, there's that part, which is one of the arguments that um, that Carter and Lynch make in a, I think it's their 2015 paper they published, um... They argue that Miami is the most dialect uh, has the most dialect diversity of Spanish in the entire world, um, which is very likely to be true. Um, if you look at just some of the numbers of different populations, you know, in walking around the streets of Miami, you don't. It's not that you hear, you know, Peninsular or like Madrid Spanish all the time, but when you look at the numbers of Spanish nationals living in the U.S., the highest concentration is in Miami. And, and so it's like, okay, well then you do hear it. And then another thing that, you know, we, uh, there's sort of two more points that I want to make. One is these interesting things that if you just take one second to kind of take a step back and listen to, you can say, huh, that's really interesting. So one of my favorite stories about Miami um, is, you know, the train in the massive airport in the middle of the city that um, takes you from one terminal to the next. So you're riding it and then they'll give you, they'll say, you know, please, please be careful, the doors are closing. And then they'll give you the Spanish translation. And if you listen close, that Spanish voice, that whoever made the choice to put whichever voice in, they picked somebody from Spain, which if you're like, if you're trying to play to your audience, that may not be the right move. But if you're trying to play to some sort of linguistic ideology um, about what is going to be perceived as, as, as correct, then that was the move that they, they, they might have made.
0: Where might the idea that an announcement on a Miami train will be perceived as better or more correct if done in peninsular Spanish come from? As we'll find out, there is a deep correlation between language and social perceptions.
2: It's really interesting. So just from a a very academic standpoint, When you look at some of the work that's being done in social psychology, right, which is sort of the main field that studies how people feel about other people, right, dealing with what's an in-group member versus an out-group member, how do I identify you or how do I identify myself, right, you have all of that. And some of it deals with language and some of it doesn't. And then there's a very small subfield of linguistics and a subfield of sociolinguistics within linguistics. Um, about language attitudes, perceptions, and attitudes, and it's it's interesting to see how both fields are really doing the same thing, but not talking to each other. And so, what we decided to do was take a method which actually comes from social psychology, called the matched guys, uh, which was developed in, in the nineteen sixties, um, and apply it to to language. And it's one of the one of the big sort of conclusions that many researchers who work with language attitudes and language perception um, is that when we are dealing with language attitudes, they rarely have to do with language itself, right? And so what I mean by that is many times when people are perceiving and giving opinions about a language, what they're really giving you is opinions about the members of that group and those people whatever that means in that context right um, and so that's that's extremely interesting it's sort of like language is used as this cover right to in many cases talk about questions of race ethnicity gender class etc cetera, etc cetera.
1: it's not about language it's about perception interestingly institutions like the real academia española considered the authority on the Spanish language and what is deemed correct and acceptable play a role in our perceptions of correctness. Here's Salvatore again.
2: Language academies are extremely interesting. Um, and so a country like the U.S. Um, doesn't have one, actually. Um, you know, the U.S. does not have an official language. And, but many countries, say in Europe, do have these, these large language academies. France is very strong. Right. So they've recently been saying things like when, when French adopts a word from English, it has to be integrated so that it looks and sounds more like French because, you know, we cannot mix. We cannot mix the two languages. That's their argument. The same thing has happened with uh, La Rai. Um, they've been, it's an institution that has uh, a, lot, a lot of discursive power. Right. So they publish these books about the correct. Way to speak. And that's where this idea of correct comes from. And so there's a concept called the the standard language ideology, right? Which is developed by Libby Green in her book uh, called English with an accent. Right. And one of the the interesting things that comes out of that research is that there's always this this imagined variety or dialect of one language that is set as, as your gold standard. And whoever doesn't doesn't get to that bar. Then they are not intelligent. They're not educated. They're from a low class, and we could keep going on with that. Um, but it's the other interesting piece with that is that oftentimes the variety that is linked to this this gold standard is discussed in a way that is is sort of accentless, right? That I'll, you hear people say all the time, "Well, I don't have an accent, but they do," or "Well, no, that person doesn't have an accent." And when you think about it, almost from a, a logical perspective, every, every person who speaks a language or a dialect, whichever, uh, has an accent, right? It's impossible to speak a language without having an accent. Um, now, whether or not that accent links to what is being considered the standard is a, is a different question. But the, but the argument that some people have an accent and some don't is actually just false, um, but a common trope that you hear over and over and over again, right? And we hear this a lot of the times with with U.S. Spanish, right? And especially children, right, who grow up speaking both English and Spanish, they are oftentimes, and you hear this a lot in Texas too, that their Spanish sounds white, right? That their Spanish sounds uh, ghetto, their Spanish is vulgar, right? Which is absolutely not the case, um, but there's this idea, right, that they're not speaking the correct or a quality type of Spanish. There's another sort of, you know, linking to, to ideology, uh, the standard language ideology that's closely tied to what we can also call a monolingual ideology, right? There's this idea that, especially in the context of the U.S. and the historical context of the U.S., there's this idea that monolingualism is the way to go, right? That speaking English is the way that we should be speaking in the U.S. You know, there's these English-only political movements that are still trying to to work. It's not not having a lot of success, but they exist. Um, And we've been seeing, especially recently, a lot of these very negative attitudes and even times physical harm being caused to people who are speaking Spanish in the U.S., Right? And you know these are very strong outcomes that come from language perception. And so you know the idea is when somebody is speaking and you're listening to them, you're not only listening for the content. Uh, you are you are also bringing into your mind every idea that you have about the group of people that speak that way that you're listening to. And this is something that we call indexicality, right? So um, if we look at different types of Spanish, right, some varieties of Spanish tend to, um, what we can say, drop the S's at the end of words, right? This comes a lot in Caribbean varieties of Spanish, you know, Cuban Spanish in Miami in particular, Right, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Spanish, even coastal varieties of you know, uh, southern parts of Latin America, Buenos Aires, right? they do the same thing. Um, and there's a historical reason as to how all of that happens. But the point here is that when people are listening to that, say, versus um, a variety linked to, to Mexico or Central America, where in certain cases those S's are more re- uh, retained, right, there's an immediate distinction between how we label those speakers, right? So if we test that, sometimes we find that those speakers who are dropping their S's are perceived as speaking in an uglier way. They're more vulgar, right, because they're not conserving all of their consonants or whatever, that they're less intelligent. And it's it just doesn't work out when you map those perceptions onto the sociological and reality. So this idea, this index of whether or not an S is there or the S kind of sounds like an H sometimes. Um, and that link of that sound to a certain attribute like intelligence, right? Is the is the is the at the root of the notion of indexicality and it's and it's sort of one of the things that these, these language academies and institutions try to grapple with, because they are trying to answer the question of what's correct and what's not correct. And then you have linguists coming in and saying, well, why do we actually care about what's correct and not correct? Why don't we just talk about the way, why don't we describe the way that people are actually speaking? right? Because there's one of the things that comes from sociolinguistics is that even within these variable ways of speaking, right? Did this accent versus that accent, there's actually still patterns that we can discover. So it's not that, you know, one variety of Spanish speaks in this hodgepodge random way, right? The, the, there's a system to the way that Spanish can drop its S's. There are actually rules to it. You can't just do it whenever you want. There's been a lot of pushback against uh, the RAI in Spain and one of the, their answers to these pushback was to create more academies but more specified ones for each country right and so they have one in the US actually um, about the it's called the North, the North American Spanish Language Academy and they published a book uh, called Hablando Bien Se Entiende La Gente okay we're going to start with the title <laughs> Hablando bien, like, like, okay, let's. There's, there's a language ideology right in the title that there is a way to speak well and a way to speak poorly, and that's that's one of the things that that we as sociolinguists are trying to grapple with and trying to say, hey, no, <laughs> that's not actually what's happening here. And so their attempt in this book, um, their attempt at describing sociolinguistic variation, still came across as a description of errors and mistakes. And from a linguistic perspective, the the variety of Spanish that is spoken in the U.S. is not just a a mixture of errors or these transfers from English, right? There There are reasons, there are rules, there are patterns to the way that speakers of Spanish in the U.S. are speaking.
0: This made us wonder, is there a U.S. Spanish? And if so, what are its characteristics? Is there a common thread that runs through the diversity of Spanish spoken in the United States? There,
2: wow, so you're hitting really, really big questions that we are still dealing with. But these are great. This is exactly what what the, the scholars who are working on Spanish in the U.S. are trying to answer. And then we can break down the question of, do we have uh, un español en los Estados Unidos? Or that we have uh, un español de los Estados Unidos. And that's kind of the, the question that we're dealing with. Like, is is there a U.S. Spanish or not? Um, and overall, what we can say so far is that arguing for, you know, this, uh, you're kind of right, actually, with this, arguing for a monolithic dialect, right, of U.S. Spanish is really difficult. Um, because of this immense variety and diversity that we're finding, Um, because of the mixture of different national origin varieties of Spanish um, and how they integrate with mainstream U.S. English-dominant society, right? They don't interact in the same ways in Miami versus Los Angeles versus Chicago and New York. They interact in very different ways. And on top of that, the Spanish that's spoken in each area is different. So let's like looking at New York in particular, right? And even the same thing happens in Miami and in Chicago, you have not only the contact of different types of Spanish, right? So you were saying like in Miami, you didn't have your Puerto Rican community. Um, so you were mixing with other types of Spanish there, but that also intersects with being in and in, in contact at the same time with English, right? So that's a lot for Speakers in the U.S. to deal with
1: children often have to confront strong language ideologies early on in school, and they stay with them later in life.
2: Good, as good intended as they are, teachers are often the times you know pushing along these ideologies about which way to speak and which way not to speak, right? Because their students have to take some type of exam, usually uh, that tests their language abilities, right? Um, And this happens even if we take Spanish out of the picture and look at different varieties of English that are spoken in the U.S., right? Many speakers of varieties say African-American vernacular English, right, are perceived negatively and held back, oftentimes for speaking the way that they speak in their communities, right? So the same thing happens to a lot of, you know, U.S., uh, young U.S. Spanish speakers, right? They're heritage speakers of Spanish. So if we're looking at, Say they're English, oftentimes, you know, we find that students are placed into the English language learner classes, um, even though English is their first language. Interesting. Um, Right. But it just happens to be that they speak English in a certain way that reflects their own identity and history. Um, It's still structured and it's still patterned, and there's nothing wrong with it, even though it's perceived. That way, right? But that has an actual sort of sociological and educational effect to it. Um, And then the same thing happens with their Spanish, right? So imagine, you know, a dual language program or a bilingual ed program uh, in a place where there's children speaking Colombian Spanish and Cuban Spanish and Puerto Rican Spanish, et cetera, et cetera, all in the same classroom, right? You're going to get a lot of different you know, head turns when you're saying, well, what was that word that you used? Well, I don't use that word, but my mom says this word, right? And there's, the way that we look at it is there's there's beauty in that, right? There's something that needs to be celebrated about that. But oftentimes when you have those sort of competitions between words or different sounds, right, one has to come out as the winner um, in a certain context. And there are many, many, reasons as to how one gets picked over the other, um, but, you know, again, we would argue that there doesn't, there doesn't have to be a winner. We just have to recognize the diversity, and we can use it as a tool to teach kids about the diversity of Spanish so that they can hopefully have less linguistic insecurity about their own Spanish and about their own English, even. Um, because that's a problem that we find with with kids. So, for example, I'm trying to think one example of like a feature, right, that comes out um, in U.S. Spanish is um, just the, the the borrowing of words, right, that come from English, right, and this gets into into Spanglish, right. So, words like eh, troca for truck, right, a word that you hear a lot of the times. In, in Texas would be perceived in Spanish as quote unquote wrong, right? Um, that there are other words that could be used in that in that context. But in that community or in those communities, that's the word that is used for truck, right? And that's, that's kind of where we leave it. Like, is it, you know, there's mutual intelligibility. People know what these speakers are saying. Um, and, you know, this links often to um, heritage language classrooms. This happens a lot at the university level where we teach Spanish courses to heritage speakers, kids who grew up speaking Spanish in the home. Um, and they're, you know, they come in and they're saying, well, you know, my Spanish is is from the ghetto where I only speak it with my grandmother. Um, so I don't know a lot of the words. And what we try, to, the goal of these these language programs is to A, Make sure that the students are feeling, you know, less insecure about their Spanish, right? Validating that they, yes, they can speak Spanish, even though they think that they don't. Um, and B, giving them more tools, right? So the question shouldn't be about which, which word or which sound is correct, right? It should be, can I, can I as a teacher, give you the tools, to know when and where to use which word or which sound, right? Can I give you more of a linguistic repertoire to pull from in different contexts? And I think that's the way that we need to be talking about it.
0: Thank you so much to Salvatore Calesano for talking with us and opening up a conversation about this truly fascinating topic. Stay tuned for the second part of this two-part series where we talk to Emily Hunsberger of Tertulia podcast about the social dynamics of growing up with two or more languages.
1: Now head over to our Facebook group and tell us about your experiences with these language value judgments and how you feel they might impact your children's bilingual development. You can also get in touch with us via Instagram and Twitter. As always, thank you so much for listening. Hasta luego.
0: Nos vemos.